now listening to Mostly Mistakes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Mostly Mistakes. Today's episode is a special one for me for a couple reasons. But I think one, when you think about the previous guests that we've had on the show, it's mostly been individuals talking about their own mistakes. And I think today we got a special guest, a coach who is going to tell us a little bit about how he's coached through failure, how he's taught his athletes, his students, his young ones, how to persevere through the low times. So without further ado, our guest today is Aristotle Thompson. Aristotle is a running backs coach at the University of Cal Berkeley, and he's going into his third season. Before that, he spent 11 seasons at my alma mater, Stan Gangs all day, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, as the assistant head coach, as the running backs coach and recruiting coordinator. Prior to that, back in the day, AT, I don't want to date you too far, but he was a four-year letter winner as a running back at Boise State back in 1997. I think it was through 2000 and took the Broncos to their first two football pro subdivisions conference championships with Big West titles in 1999 and 2000. He's actually one of my favorite coaches of all time. And on a serious tip, not only did he teach me the game, but he taught me how to be a young man and he taught me how to push through failure. So, Coach, thank you for joining us today. Perfect. Man, appreciate you guys having me. John David. I'm fired up to be here. I appreciate the sentiments about our relationship and our time together. But let's stray away from that old talk, man. You start dating me when you start talking about when I played, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> People are like, dang, how old is Coach? You know, I try to keep my face cleaned up every now and again, keep the grays away to make people think I'm still – I ain't going to say the years because then I'm giving myself up. <laughs> I appreciate it, though. I really do. No, I'm blessed to be a coach at the University of California, blessed to have been at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for a number of years where, you know, we're Four of my kids were born there, all born in the same hospital. So San Luis Obispo is a special place in our heart. And the young men that we're able to come in contact with there and that open up their hearts to us because this whole coaching profession is not just about football. It's about life. And John, you hit it on the head when you said that we gave you the opportunity to, to grow and give you life lessons, man. Well, you open up your heart, you know, and the guys that we've been around, not just at, at my position, but in the program and at the university, they open up their hearts to us. Yeah. So yeah. that's been a huge part of why we do this. When I say we, you know, myself, my wife, Sarah, our kids, we're all involved in this. But, you know, I've been blessed to be able to be involved in coaching, man, really since I got done playing. So, uh, again, I'm not going to date myself by saying how many years I've been doing it, but <laughs> we've had a good run with this. And again, it's about the people. You know, it's always been about the people, the young men, the families, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, other coaches, their kids. It's been about them, you know, the interactions that, that we have and been blessed for a number of years to be around good people that allow us to do things the way that we do it and just open our arms to us. So I appreciate you guys having me on here, you know, ready to have fun with you guys tonight. We're excited. And I think for me, it's, again, a special one, just because of, you know, the relationship that we had at Cal Poly. And I know we only spent a year together, but that was, I think, one of the most transformative seasons in just years of my life. For me, sports has had such a profound impact on how I perceive life, on how I deal with failure, 
on how I treat my teammates, my peers, my coaches, and my mentors. So for me to reconnect with you again, it's a, it's a special episode. So thanks again. And what we'll do is I want to start off with getting a baseline for you. And as a coach, why do you think failure is important? Well, understanding where you're trying to go, how you get there, you have to know that there's going to be setbacks or failures, right, that you're going to incur. And if you never incur any type of failure, any type of setback, you won't know how to handle it when you do have one. You know, so I think it's necessary for you to have a pitfall of, of some sort that challenges you to rise up again and see what you can do. You know, I love looking at that old quote from Michael Jordan talking about all the shots that he missed mm-hmm. so he could hit the game winners, right? He wasn't afraid to take that shot because he had taken it again and again and again and had missed in game, had missed at practice. But when it was on this biggest stage, he was ready for it. He was <laughs> not afraid to fail in that moment. Failure wasn't in his mind. It was, this is what I do. I take these shots. And then it became, I just make these shots. I make these shots. So you know, I think it's necessary for people to have pitfall, setbacks, failures in life in order to grow. No growth comes from a place of comfort. Cool. Not cool. one. Cool. You're not going to grow in life if everything's comfortable. Well, having a shortcoming, having a failure is not comfortable. And if it is comfortable for you, if you are comfortable with just constantly taking L's, you better change up what the hell you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Facts. Facts. There should be some wins, some successes in between. Right. Right. Most definitely. To your point though, you know, without failure, there is no growth. And I think one of our other guests, Boomer, he, he said, right outside of the edge of your comfort zone is growth. Yes. Just outside of that is where you grow, where you learn, where you're stretched beyond ways that you're used to behaving, mm-hmm. right? Or, or, or used to learning within. So AT, to push that question a little bit more, what is the most important aspect of failing? This is a tough one because I think it's important to recognize what brought about the failure. Where were you off in the process, right? Where were you off in your game plan? Where were you off in your objectives? Where were you off in your form or your delivery or whatnot? You know, you got to be able to identify and pinpoint it because if you don't, you can't fix it, right? You got to be able to fix it. I think that with understanding that failure is going to force me to grow. Mm Mm-hmm. It's going to force me to grow. So I think that the understanding that the, the after of it, that, you know, in football, you, you, I mean, you guys have heard this stuff before, right? That let it sit for 24 hours and then let it go. Well, that's sitting for 24 hours, not really letting it sit. It's really supposed to dig at you, let you sit back and analyze, comb through the tape, comb through the plays, comb through, you know, the way you was carrying the ball or, or how you caught it or whatever it may be, right? Comb through those things. And then say, okay, now I'm ready to speak about what it was, right? Let me speak about what it was. This this is where I was wrong. This is what I need to do. And this is how I'm going to be better. So I think that actualization right there, being able to let it marinate and then come back and grow from that experience, you know, those two things. I think those 24 hours, it does a couple of things for you. 
One is it allows you, again, that obvious time of reflection, but it also allows you to like remove any emotions from the process, right? And, and from that conversation that you have about it. And it's a great segue to my next question because I feel like, man, this next question is kind of triggering for me. <laughs> it's it's about the film room because Dave, we had a lot of film sessions where AT was just stuck. It was, <laughs> I'm like laid out on the field. I'm missing a block. I'm letting somebody go past me. I'm messing up a route or something. But it, it is, it's, it's one of the most important processes when it comes to improving your craft, right? Or working on your craft on the football field. So mm-hmm. AT, if you can, like, how do you coach through failure on the field? And then on the flip side, how do you coach through failure in the film room, right? Because those, those are two completely different environments that call for, I guess, like different tactics. Yeah, no doubt. When you get failures on the field, it's tough because it's such an emotional time, especially on game day, right? You're not trying to mess it up. The player's not trying to mess it up, but you have to be able to channel what's going to make that young man to get him to perform and do what he needs to do. And I've learned, man, I've learned over the years that don't just jump everything because sometimes, all right, hey, you know what? Some people, it's a tough situation for them, right? You find yourself at times as a coach making sure you're putting players in the best position to be successful. And if you can look back at it and say, I don't know how much of a chance I give that young man to be successful. How can I be on him for this failure? That's on both of us. Him physically, me on the mental aspect for not putting him in position to do it. And if it was something mentally that he missed, he just did did everything the wrong way. Well, again, that's on me because I didn't do a great enough job preparing him for that moment. And so one of the things I try to do on the football field when somebody does something wrong or they have a failure or shortcoming, right, I try not to make it personal. So I heard somebody probably two years ago tell me this, make the praise about the name, make the failure about the number. So, John, if you drop a pass, come on, Nye. Come on, Nye. You're better than that. You're better than that, Nye. Right? I'm triggered, Coach. Coach, I'm triggered. I heard that a lot. I heard that a lot. (laughs) You know, and then when you get to the praise, y'all will be there. Come on, man. Keep it going, baby. Come on, Jono. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to have a flip to it because if it's always the numbers, always the name, young men and people in general start to think that everything that come out your mouth when you say their name is going to be negative. Well, we're not trying to reinforce the negative. We're trying to get to the positive, but we have to highlight that failure. And from the film room, I think the film room is a great time to slow things down because on the field, I try to be the player's eyes, right? I'm trying to tell you what I see when we play and we all see it differently, right? Oh, I didn't do that. I did this. All right. Now I'm telling you right now I'm recording, right? I'm recording what you're doing. And then so when we get to the tape and say, okay, Hey, let's take a look. All right, let's go back here. And I remember a couple of times, John, like, no, I didn't take that step. I didn't take that step. And then, you know, you take that step. All right. Then a couple other times like, no, Hey, Hey, you're right. John, you're right. You're right, you know, and put stuff in a different light for you, you know. So when you get to the tape, man, you really got to go through it slowly first, right? I always try to make sure, and we do this as a staff, we'll go through and watch the tape on our own first. And then I'll go back and watch it again. Then I'll make a cut up and then I send it to the players, let them watch it. And then we come back and we talk about it. And you can tell, okay, some guys are like, okay, no, that was right. Okay, no. Okay, no. I was on this. And we'll go through film sessions. And if I'm off, 
going to correct myself right there and say, hey, I told you wrong or you were right on this play and this is, this is what happened and go from there. You know, I'm not too big to admit I'm wrong. I'm not too big to admit that I, I failed. Like I said this again and again, I ain't the smartest person in the world. And I ain't ever going to pretend to be. What I believe in, I'm going to speak firmly about. I'm going to speak deliberately about, you know, with conviction. If I don't know, hey, man, all right, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. So when we get to that film session and we get to doing it, you know, it's like, okay, hey, here's where you went wrong. Let's draw this up. Let's pause it. Draw it up. Get up on the board. Draw it up. And if from drawing it up to talking it verbally to showing it on tape, if there's a break in there somewhere that you can say, oh, that's what it went wrong. Now you got the reset point. Okay, we got to go back to this point. We got to go back to you saw this incorrectly, right? How do I get you to see this the way that I see it, the way the offensive coordinator sees it, the way the offensive line sees it, which is going to put us in position to be successful? So try to break that down, compartmentalize, break each phase down of the way it was taught and the way that they viewed it. And usually when you do that, you find a base for where they got off. Now, if you get back to the field and sometimes guys just beat from the wound, like they just defeated at the wound, like they DNA just didn't match that other cat's DNA. It just ain't going to work. You get that, then eh, hey, they got us on that one. <laughs> they got us. Man, that's powerful. As you were talking, I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about making mistakes and reflection and recognition. I don't even have a question. I'm more so just a statement or a comment. But coaches are in such a unique position because most of the time people make mistakes and it's just themselves doing the reflection and recognition. It's so powerful for you to make a mistake and then you as a coach get to walk someone through that reflection, that recognition, and that path forward, right? Like, So I, I just think that that's such a unique, powerful opportunity that most people don't get. It really is, man. When I think that if you can slow down whatever you're doing and take notes about it, you know, I think it's big to be able to take notes in the moment. You know, it's one thing that I learned as we were having like recruiting visits, just taking notes, right? Sometimes it's mental notes, but sometimes it's like, oh, hey, look, I had to write it down. Well, then I, I, I changed that up instead of myself just writing notes. Anybody that I had as my point team doing something, they might be leading a tour, they may be driving a parent to a hotel or whatever, hey, have a pen, write it down or get on your phone, voice note, like leave something there because when it's all said and done, you don't want to miss something that was crucial. You don't want to miss something that was key. So I think it's invaluable to not only take notes, but also to have an after action report or after action review that you go over whatever it was, especially if it's something big, right? If you guys are sitting down with some powerful people, you know, you guys are networking with some elite people in this world, right? You know, and after you get done with that meeting with them and you killed it, right? You fired up like, man, we just, ooh, hey, we got that. Come on. And you so juiced. Oh, hey, let's go hang. Take five minutes just to write some notes about it. Just write notes about whatever it is. Even if it was, hey, he said his wife, Melissa, loved doing this. Okay, bet my wife loves doing that. We can get them connected, right? Or he was allergic to this. So make sure next time we don't have, you know, next time we have more, we don't have any of that food around because we don't want a reaction, whatever it may be, but just take that time, just write them notes, voice memo, whatever it is. I stay texting myself, right? Little notes, right? Little ideas that come to me to make sure to your point that I don't forget it. I want to go back to some real quick, AT, and, and this is somewhat serious. 
is I do appreciate you giving me credit for occasionally being right when we watched film. But like <laughs> that, 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 that was a rare, rare moment. Rare, very, very rare moment that I was actually right. Usually I was fucking up. Usually I was fucking up and AT caught it. You call me on it. So AT, to, to get back to it, right? Your students, your, your athletes. And this question, it could be on or off the field. And it, it might be you know helpful to hear both, but what are some of the most common failures of young college athletes? Ooh, man. College athletes, I mean, there's something different every day, but probably a common, I guess, if you will, failure that I've seen throughout my years is that guys forget that when you come in as a freshman, you're still a freshman, right? You're still a freshman. It's cool. You was four-star, whatever it is, five-star. You was all-star, all-state, all-conference. Man, you was the baddest mother on your team. Man, that's cool. So was everybody else lining up here. Everybody (laughs) else lining up here was like that too. I don't care if you're playing baseball, basketball. Everybody else was that dude where they came from. And so when you have been through such a high time of praise, well, you was a man, right? Did nobody on campus say boo to you? You just there. I think a lot of guys will make the mistake of not being able to initially humble themselves and get back to what got them to that point, as opposed to saying, I'm at this point already. What got you there was the work you put in. What got you there was the determination. What got you there was a willingness to say, I'm going to compete because some guys was playing high school ball as freshmen, right? Some was playing as a sophomore. You got pulled up from JV or whatever it may be. But what got you there was by dominating. You didn't get there by telling everybody your stats. No, I ain't trying to hear that. I ain't trying to hear your stats from what you did in high school. That's cool, man, but I really don't care at this point. What you going to do now? Are you going to put on right here, right now for these guys in front of you? Because these dudes here, they coming for your neck. They coming for your neck. They don't care how many stars you had. They don't care how many patches you had in your letterman jacket. Nobody cares about that. Humble yourself, close your mouth for a second, get to work. And then when you start acting a fool out here on the field and you start really going, okay, now you see it on a different light. Now let's talk it. So I think that's probably one of the big ones that I see. And it's probably more so from males. I can't say for females. I haven't really, you know, I haven't dealt with coaching females on the collegiate level. I've, I've coached females, young ladies, in uh, high school track. It was different with them. It was much different at that level for the young ladies. But for males, I think that's one of the big ones. It's not, not humbling yourself and, and showing what you need know, to just keep to the work. That's probably the big one on the field. Off the field, it's social. Not understanding to have the balance with school, football, and social. I struggled with it when I was a player early on. So I had to, you know, had to have some get right life lessons come into play for me. You know, I, I used to tell you guys all the time, John, I, mean, I ain't perfect, man. I did some shit in my days. But what I did, I want you guys to learn from my mistakes so you guys don't make those mistakes. And 90% of the mistakes that young men make off the field have to do with social. You're struggling in school because you're kicking it too much. You're struggling in school because you're on on that PlayStation too much. You're struggling in school because you're trying to chase females. You're struggling in school because you want to sit back and blow all day. You know what I'm saying? All those things 
right? I'm struggling in football. I can't focus in meetings. Why? Well, shoot, man. Hey, coach, I just got this new girlfriend. And, you know, it's things like that. 90% of the issues that, that you incur are usually social. Maybe I should walk that back to about 60 because sometimes it can be things from back home, right? You don't see this as much as you used to back in when I played, but guys would come from the hood or whatnot and get to college and, and all of a sudden they was the OG. Meanwhile, they got the pass back home because they was an athlete. They weren't in the streets like that, but they want to act like the industry. You don't see it as much. Nowadays, dudes is more stunting on what they actually got, trying to live at a higher rate than they actually are. You know what I'm saying? Got the little fake Gucci belts and whatnot. It's like, oh, I got a Gucci belt. Bruh, stop. Swap me. Swap me. Come on, man. Hey, I'm triggered now. I'm triggered. Swap me. So, Coach, I guess the one thing I wanted to touch on is just the, the importance of young student athletes being able to balance the football, school, and social aspect of it. And that was, I mean, I, I talked about it on the, you know, the trailer of this podcast. Is that something I struggled with? I want to say my first year, and maybe maybe a little my second year, but mostly my first year. And I was raised in a house. I was raised in Tim Grayson's house. It was the most strict house, right? And I wasn't allowed to do much. And so I got to school and it was like, yeah, I ain't, ain't got to check in. I ain't got to do nothing. It ain't right. Like, out there and lost your damn mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's true. And, and at some point, right, I was able to ring it in or able to dial it in. But I think that skill of being able to juggle the many aspects of being a young athlete, I think it's had a profound impact on how I've been able to persevere and kind of carry post-college in the professional world. And I think to any young student athlete, I've gone back to Cal Poly uh, to speak at a few career fairs and just like career nights, I forget what we, what we call them. But there was a lot of, I want to say juniors and seniors that were thinking about post-college life and hopping into their careers. And they were curious, like, what can I do as an athlete? And I think that is one of your biggest strengths and one of the biggest assets that you can take away from your experience is you've been able to somehow manage a full course load. You've been able to somehow manage a full-time job in the sense of the sport that you play. You're practicing, you're up at 6 a.m., you got weights, you got film, you got meetings, you got travel, you got all these different aspects. And then on top of that, you have a social life, you have your family, you have your partner, you have your spouse, and then you have yourself, right? You got to take care of yourself. There's time for yourself in there as well. So just shout out to all the young athletes. You're doing a lot more than you actually know right now. Yeah, big shout out to all of the all of the young athletes. I'm going to give a different perspective. I didn't get the opportunity to play a sport at the Division One level, but I watched my brother play at the Division One level, and he played at Cal. He played football, and I remember going up to visit him when I was in high school, and just the amount of things that he had to manage and how his days were so stacked. I remember looking in high school and being like, oh, I can't wait to do that, right? I want, I want to do that too. But about two years into college, when I actually got there, I reflected back and I was like, damn, my brother was actually doing a lot and managing a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until then that I realized like, yo, I got it cool, right? Because I don't have to juggle all of these other things. And anything that I am juggling is because I'm choosing to. Everyone chooses to play a sport, but a lot of those things like he had to do. I remember my schedule my my freshman year, it was we practiced at I think it was like six thirty every day. 
So I'm up at 5.45, 6 o'clock, maybe 6.15, and I'm rushing to the field. We got practice from you know 6.30 to, I want to say it was like 8.30, maybe 9. Mm-hmm. Then we had post-practice, we called it, God, what was it called? AGT. I forget what AGT is. AGP, there we go. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Academic game plan. And it was so crazy what academic game plan was, is you'd meet with your position coach and what they would do is they would look at all of your notes from the classes the day before. Or if it was Monday, then it was your Friday or Thursday classes. And during AGP, we would have to take notes on our notes, like in the margins of each page, we would go through and have to take notes to reinforce it. Then we'd wrap up with that, and then I'd have to go to class. And I'd have class from like 10 to 12, and then maybe another class from 12.30 to 1.30. Then I would have weights. I'd have to go to weights, and then I'm getting ice, and I'm getting STEM, and I'm getting treatment. Then I got to eat, and then from there, I got class again. And if I'm not going to class, I'm going back, and we got film, watching film. Then I got to eat again. And at the time, I had a girlfriend, so trying to text my girlfriend and call her and make sure that she knows that I'm thinking about her. It's, It's a lot. Like thinking back to it, it's a crazy ass schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. We're, we're seven, 18 years old trying to figure this out. That's the huge part right there is that when you learn that process, right? When you understand, hey, this is what I have to do. This is kind of, you know, one of the things. And, and I didn't come up with this. I got it from Chris Peterson. I worked with him at Boise State, but you can't confuse routine with commitment. Right. So when you were a freshman, okay, your routine was to go to practice, go have breakfast. Man, I got to sit through AGP and I got to go through class. Man. Well, then when you had some pitfalls and had to fight to get yourself back where you wanted to be, all of a sudden it wasn't your routine. It was your commitment. You had to commit to doing those things because that was going to put you in a position to have the life that you wanted at that time. You can't confuse routine with commitment, right? A routine is I just kind of do it. I show up. I'm there. If I get something out of it, I don't. But when I'm committed to something, I'm giving it my all. I'm focused. I'm at practice. I'm warming up. I'm ready for it. I'm engaging. Coach, let me see the script. What are we running today? Hey, coach, let me get a couple extra reps of this. Let me get that, right? You're starting to see it already play through. When you go to AGP, your notes are detailed. You've already got your highlights in the margin. You already got a couple things because you know you got to go to class and you got to go to office hours with your professor. Well, those notes that you put on the side, those now become your questions that you ask during office hours. You're not just going in, I'm here to uh, see what we're going to have on the test. No, you're going in with directives trying to get them to give you what you need, right? Without actually just asking for it, you telling them, oh, hey, I remember we was reading this book and on chapter blah, 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 right? You're feeding them, oh, he's engaged, he's interested, right? You was committed to going in there working. Oh, hey, now I rolled my ankle. I got to go in and get some treatment on this. I know I got 45 minutes. I can go in here and I can go ice and stem. I can do some contrast. Okay. And this is going to get me feeling good post-practice. I can go back later on and get a rub down on my ankle, get some ultrasound. Okay. Because I know the ultrasound is going to help me through the night. Then before I leave, once I get out of position meetings, then I can come, come back and grab some ice, just to ice down again one more time. You go to position meetings. You got your notes. You're sitting in the front, right? You're ready to go. Okay. Hey, coach, put on that other game. Put on that other. I want to see this one. We watched this one yesterday. Coach, put another one, right? 
all of a sudden your commitment to what you were doing changed. Right. It was no longer your routine. You were committed to it because you knew what you wanted to do at that time. That part right there is what we have to as coaches get young men to understand that don't just go through a process. Don't just go through a routine. Be committed to this shit. Be 100 percent committed to what you're doing. And when you commit to it, you're going to give it your attention, your all, your heart, and you'll reap the benefits from it. Go quote. It's not about routine. It's about commitment. Love that. Coach, one last question for you is, what do you think is the most valuable failure that a young college athlete can make, right? That they'll just take away the most from it. When you have a failure as a college athlete, in particular as a college football player, it can be a coach, it can be another player. When they pick you up and they put their arms around you and say, it's going to be all right. And you come to reality and realize you're not in this thing alone. We love Pac. We love me against the world. But it's people that's here for you, to support you, to uplift you, and to push you to your destiny. And so I think that when you can realize that it's not you by yourself in this, because I think a lot of young men fail to realize that it's not just them. Guys think that people are against them and he is it out for me. And I had this bad situation. It's just like, no, that part right there is what's holding you back. That failure is holding you back. You're not overcoming that. And when they allow somebody to open their arms, open their heart to them and let them know, hey, I love you. It's going to be all right. Let's grow from this. So I don't know if that's if that hits it on the head, but just kind of listening to when you ask that question, that that was the one that really resonates, because I think that that right there, that aspect of it, man. That, that's what's important to me within this. I think that answer is probably better than highlighting just a single failure that an individual can have. Instead, it's recognizing what you take from the failure, right? And who you have when you are in those low moments and how important it is to have a surrounding cast, to have a support system. So now it's a great answer. Thank you, coach. So AT, when I think about some of the best coaches that I've had in my life, three things really pop up, right? Care, like a high amount of care for me as like a person, as a human, the ability to build my confidence and really holding me accountable. There's definitely many other things that make great coaches, but for me, those, those are three things that I take away from some of the best coaches that I've had. This question is going to be more geared around the, the confidence piece and geared around imposter syndrome. So I want to understand, like, how does imposter syndrome show up for most college athletes? And what I'm thinking about personally is is kind of what we talked about earlier, maybe that that running back or that receiver that ran for 3,000 yards or caught, you know, 100 passes in, in high school, right, at a small school, goes up to D1, and they're on the big stage, and they don't, just don't necessarily feel like they belong or mm-hmm. that they're not worth being on that stage. So how does that usually show up and, and what does that development cycle look like from a coach's perspective? It shows up a number of different ways, but probably the one that is most apparent is that when you see a receiver continuously dropping balls and all of a sudden they they start to sulk, right? You you see it when we talk about don't have bad body language, right? You see the the hunching over the chin down on the chest, you know, and they get in a funk where routine things 
and I mean routine, just getting off the line of scrimmage, catching a five-yard hitch, catching a slant for a running back, you know, bobbling a handoff, tripping and falling in the open field all by themselves. Routine things that you see them do, and then they start to doubt the ability. And sometimes they don't vocally doubt their ability, but you see it again in the body language and the mannerisms or in the sliding to the back. That's a big one. We sitting there watching team, right? 11 on 11. Here we go. Scripted up. We all out there ready to go. Everybody juiced. You fired up about it. And then you can't find somebody that you want to sub in. And that shows up on game day too. You looking for somebody to call. And as a position coach, your guy's supposed to be right behind you, right? And I move a lot on the sidelines. So I always tell my guys, don't be behind me. Be at the sticks. Because if you're at the sticks, I can find you. Well, if I go to the sticks or I'm yelling for you and I can't find you, you over here talking to the trainers, you ain't really trying to go in. You ain't trying to go in. And that's usually from that imposter syndrome. They don't feel like they belong there. I don't want to go in because I'm afraid to mess up or I'm not Mm -hmm. good enough. And so when you see that, you want to check them, right? But you don't. You you initially, you got to see, okay, where's his mind at? Where's his dome? Does he have the fortitude to say, no, I'm about to go in here and get it myself? And then when you don't see that, that's when you got to pull a guy aside. And one of the things that I've, I've tried to convey to guys over the years is that if you're there, you belong there. You are not here by accident. You are not here by accident. If you are here, you belong in this moment, period. Now, I remember saying... When we went to San Jose State, John, 2009, we go to go to San Jose State. It's like, man, I don't know if I can say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. It's like, fuck them. I don't care where they come from. I don't care what they play for. Fuck them. Used to beat motherfuckers' ass like them. What does John do to start the game off? Bust a big run, and he was like, fuck them too. I'm ready to go. You know what I'm saying? Bust a big run. I got that. Broke a tackle and was 60 yards down the field. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, and then all of a sudden. Everybody had confidence because John knew he was ready for that moment. It wasn't doubt in him about his ability to play there. There was no doubt for him about that. And then you have the flip side with some other guys where the moment gets too big. Like my man Coach Dirty said, they pissed down their leg, right? Pissing down their leg. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, you see that. And so you got to continue to come back to challenge. Hey, you are here. Show who you are. Show what you can do. Show that you belong. Take it one play at a time. Don't worry about the game. Don't worry about, oh, I'm about to be a starter. No, win this rep. Win this one rep. And then stack. Like I tell the guys now, we're going to stack good shit on good shit on good shit. And at the end of the day, we're going to be great because we keep stacking good shit. We keep making daily deposits of doing good. That's how you got to break that for me, right? You got to break it down to the small and the small will take care of the big. The details, the, the the finite details, you take care of those, the big picture is going to take care of itself. I promise it will. No matter what profession you're in, I don't care what business, your relationship, whatever it is, if you take care of the small, it's going to take care of the big picture, right? Jono, you married. It's something your wife like for you to do. Maybe it's take out the trash. Maybe it's rubber feet. Maybe it's bringing some flowers every now and again. But you know that one little thing is going to make her be like, okay, yeah, go play golf 
Go hang with them. You know what I'm saying? But that little thing is taking care of the Facts. big picture. She ain't sitting at home Facts. pissed, right? But you know, taking care of that small, oh, yeah. getting them to, to see that small moment, man, and going from there. That's super important. Jono. I just want to say one thing. Just he put it on wax. He put it on wax and I broke broke a 60. What was it? I think it was 64. I just had to highlight that. That's it. That's it. Go ahead, Dave. I knew you wasn't going to let that moment pass. I knew you wasn't <laughs> going to let it pass. But AT, so it sounds to me like someone has to come to that decision to move forward. So what I want to understand is from a coach's perspective, what do you see that happens to people that make that decision and and push through, right? Make the decision to push through imposter syndrome versus the athlete that doesn't get over that hump, right? Sulks in it and never gets to their potential or to their original form. I'll start with the latter on that. You know, guys who don't push through it, you see a number of things happen. I already talked about kind of sliding to the back, right? You you, you can't find them, right? They just kind of hide out back there, right? From there, they usually don't become productive members of the team. And what I mean by a productive member of your team is not a starter, is not all conference, is do you have a role that you embrace that is valued by your team, your teammates, and then your coaches? Because if your teammates and the team doesn't put value on you, ain't no coach going to put value on you because your peers got to respect you. If your peers don't respect you, you're out there on a solo dolo and you can't do that in football. I don't care who you are. Your team got to respect you. Like You look at Odell Beckham and people say, oh, he's a flashy prima donna, this and that. I tell you one thing, his teammates rock with him. They rock with him. So whatever you talk about what he doing in the social media scene or his touchdown dances and all that, the team ride with him because they come right down. They're trying to give it up with him. You see the linemen trying to get there and pick him up at the end of something. They rock with him. Having that productive role, those guys struggle to have that. And what you usually end up seeing is those are the guys who, for the most part, are really doing it because somebody else wanted them to do it. And so then you start to see that come about and saying, I don't know if I love this game. I don't know if I love what I'm doing. Well, really what it is, what they don't love is that task, that challenge, that mental fortitude to fight for some shit. They lose that. And to be honest, they probably never had it. They probably Mm. never had it. But what it was, was that they were physically better than the people that they were surrounding themselves with at a different place. And that gave them a false sense of confidence, a false sense of belonging, and a big bravado to kind of pound their chest. And so those are the guys that you see back in the day. Those are the guys you would see that would just stop playing. I just want to go to school. I just want to focus on school. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what you want to do. You want to focus on school, man, do that. That's beautiful, right? Go get your degree. Don't take away the opportunity for somebody else that will want to be in that spot. Nowadays, what you see it, and not in its totality, you know, there's nothing against guys that do this, but nowadays at times you see that in the aspect of guys going to the transfer portal, especially guys in that first or second year there. A guy in his third or fourth year may just, hey, look, I just want to turn over a new leaf. But that first or second year, have you even dove in enough to really find out what it's really about? 
have you let go of those things back home? People calling you every week to tell you how great and how you should be playing. You should be doing this. Have you let go of that to give yourself a chance, right? Guys in third and fourth year that's doing it, you know, I, I look at that sometimes a little differently because, you know, they have been through a little bit of fire usually. So that's kind of how you, you see those guys who aren't able to persevere to fight through. They just don't get over that imposter syndrome. The guys that you see that do are the guys who can become and usually become the core members of your team, if you will. I've heard people say the glue guys, right? The guys who who help things stick together, right? They're writing for the cause. They celebrate each other's successes. It doesn't have to be them doing it for them to get joy out of it. They see other people around them being successful and they fired up for it, right? We used to talk about this all the time. DeMar, if you make this block and John hits the run, it's successful for both of y'all because he can't exist without you making this block. You can't exist without him making the run behind your block. We in here for each other. And so when you are just as excited about somebody else being successful on your team as you are for yourself, those are the guys that you see that overcome that. Those are guys that you see push through. And sometimes they do become the starters, the stars, all that stuff. And sometimes it happens. But at the end of the day, when you can be happy about somebody else's success on your team, on your unit, you've broken through that imposter syndrome. And when you can go out there and have a hand in them being successful just by doing what you're supposed to do. You didn't make some big block. You didn't have to make this great runners, fantastic catch, but you stepped up in the pocket and, and hit that linebacker in the mouth. You went on your seal track and you cut that linebacker's outside thigh, right? Thigh bore soup, you know, you went and got that. So those guys that break through that imposter syndrome, that's what I see. Those guys, the, the glue guys, core guys to your program, to your team. Love that. Love that, AT. And I love how you're sharing with us how you coach people through this and improve someone's confidence, right? Like, I, I love that piece. And I want to now kind of flip it a little bit and understand how you got so much confidence to be in the position that you're in now, right? So I've listened to a few podcasts that you've been on and and you stand on very strong philosophies, right? No excuses. You talked about the commitment versus routine. You talked about a number of different principles. And I want to understand like what in your life led you to believe these things and then eventually get you to the position where you're at now? What helped you go out and be able to stand on on these principles and then teach them back to so many college students over the years? Mm -hmm. Well, where I'm at in my life is not because of me, you know, by the grace of God, by having people who love me and wanted to push me and help me grow. You know, my mother, who's now deceased, the way that she pushed and was always on my ass about everything, the way she challenged me to be whatever I thought I could be and whatever I said was going to be and how that she would say, and I still say it too, Ernestine didn't raise no punk. Being able to, mm -hmm. to be firm about what you say, be confident in who you are. And my grandmother, Aunt Ruth, as most people refer to her, but I refer to her Grammy. She's now deceased as well. How she, she taught me how to love. She taught me how to love everybody because everybody is a creation of the Lord. And if you don't love people, then you don't love the Lord. Those two women really shaped who I am today 
and where I am and how I got to this point. And my wife kind of being an extension of my grandmother now continuing to show me how to love. You know, my kids showing me how to love, how to be a better version of myself, how to give of myself and how to make something about other people. You know, a big part of, of being a father is giving of yourself and sacrificing for others. Well, those are things you do within the game as well. You sacrifice for others. And so you start to live your life through what actions that you've had and the tasks you had before. And you see that how it plays out, why people say football mimics life. Because it does in so many aspects that you just have to be able to listen and reflect on those things. Another part for me was having some setbacks, you know, having setbacks in college, going into college, thinking that, man, I'm about to be on my way. And then getting dinged on the academic side as a senior in high school that, oh, hey, you didn't make the correct SAT score. You got to take this over again. Yeah, you're not going to enroll in August when everybody else is, you're going to have to sit out and take this test again. Getting there, being humbled by that, having to take that SAT again. You know, it's first year of the sliding scale. One of the best birthday presents I ever had. My sister gave me an SAT prep book. She was like, get your shit done. Here it is. Get your shit done. Going to college, man, and, and having been moved to a different position, you know, going in as a running back and not, well, we want you to play a strong safety. We got a couple injuries, but let's, let's play a strong safety. And just going in and say, okay, hey, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to get on the field. And I look back at it now, and part of it was, okay, hey, look, we don't think he's going to play running back. Let's put him over here. But then, oh, shit, he made a couple plays over there. So let's keep it going. But then realizing that, you know what, I came in to play running back, man. I'm going to play running back, move back to running back, right? Going from bottom of the depth chart to the top. Persevere, have to fight through that. And going in and, and sitting down and talking to one of the smartest people I've ever been around in the game of football, now retired uh, former college and NFL coach, Dirk Cutter. Shout out to DK. I mean, that's the guy right there, man. Taught me so much about football, but he also told me to say what the hell you want to say. Sitting in his office telling him spring of 1999, hey, man, stop playing to get to the fourth quarter. Stop being conservative. Let's go at him. And he looks at me and he says, I never had anybody say that to me before. You got some balls, A.T., I'm just going to say what I feel, man. I mean, what do I have to lose at this point? Like, let's go get it, you know. And from there, we led the nation scoring the next two years. So understanding that part of it. And then as you go through all these different life experiences that you have, these hurdles that you incur, these setbacks, these triumphs that you have as well, you know, going through all these different things, you start to say, okay, well, what have I learned from this stuff? Or am I just – gliding, right? Am I just gliding or am I learning something from it? And when you start to sit back and say, okay, hey, this is what I love. This is who I am. And who you are should be a person that you give to other people at some point. For me, I knew that I was going to be a football coach from probably my freshman, sophomore year in college, just because I understood the game. And I was able to verbalize it to other people who could do it better than me. And then I had to get my stuff to speech where I could do it a little bit better too. But my words and the way that I was able to convey the information was like, okay, no, I'm built for this. And how I come to some of the things that I stand on and believe in as a coach is from my mindset. I'm not into excuses. Like, don't make an excuse. Don't make an excuse. And I'm not going to say this quote that I 
I learned because I, I, I'm a butcher the quote, but this parent told me one time, he, it was a, here's a little paraphrase of it, that excuses are bridges to nowhere. It was a quote that his fraternity mm. had brought about. I, I'm going to grab it and read it off for y'all, but it was deep and it was profound, right? It hit me. It's like, we make no excuses. You mess up, be accountable for it. Stand up. Don't say it's my bad. No shit, it's your bad. You was the only one doing it, right? Just be accountable. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get it right. I'll clean that up. Having no fear. Tapping into the failure part, right? No fear of failure, man. No fear. We ain't fearing anything. If it don't go our way, it wasn't meant to be that day. But we ain't going to fear nobody. They put on their pants one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. We, we, ain't, we ain't afraid of anybody. We are who we are. And we believe that we're going to go out there and go fight for what we want to do. You know, and when I first got to Cal Poly, this was something that I, I believed in as a player. I still believe in to the day. I told the guys, hey, we're going to bomb first, right? We're going to bomb first. We ain't going to wait for somebody to hit us in the mouth. We're going to go at them, right at them. And I still believe that to this day. I'm not trying to sit back and wait and see how the game unfolds. I'm trying to take flight on you right now. If things look funky in a situation <laughs> and I got my back to the wall and I'm looking around, I ain't waiting for somebody to swing on me. I'm going to take flight. Straight up. And deal with the consequences from there. I ain't making no excuses. <laughs> like, hey, I thought you was about to go, so I had to steal. So that bomb first mentality, man, and that to me just comes from upbringing and trials and tribulations, man, and being in a place that, that you have to push yourself and you have to be self-motivated. You have to be a self-starter and you, you have to build on the successes that you had by practicing success. Success is not an act. It's a habit. Paraphrasing. Aristotle, by the way, Greek philosopher. That was him, not me. That's him, right? <laughs> Go, quote. You know what Go, Go quote. Go quote. <laughs> you know, but you have to practice being successful. And in order to practice being successful, you incur failures. Yeah. So you fight through those failures and you find what success is and you try to live in success. And your success is what you aim for it to be. It's not what Twitter says. It's not what TikTok or IG says is what you determine it to be. But at the same time, we have to be willing to dive into what we believe is success and say, there's more for you. Your success level is not just this right here. You got so much more. And getting young men to understand that even when they think they're at their peak, there's more for them. That's what I do. That's what I try to tap into. That's how I try to live is to get them to understand there's more for them. Don't set yourself short. Don't limit who you want to become. Don't limit what you're trying to do. Go after it. Then raise the bar. Go get that. And then raise the bar. Keep pushing yourself for who you want to become. So that's kind of how I am where I am and why I'm here because of those relationships, the upbringing the bonding with some of my teammates and the conversations that we had, you know, I mean, college football, man, it's beautiful. I mean, college is beautiful. Right? I learned how to be a man with the guys I played college football with. I learned how to be a man with them. And what I want to do now is teach other young men how to be a man and help them grow. I didn't have Bad relationships with some of my, my coaches, 
in college, but I didn't have great relationships. And I try to work to where I can have great relationships with the young men that I, I get a chance to coach. And it's not always that way, but you got to find ways to try it. And if, if I'm not willing to try to have a great relationship and to help them become the man that they need to be, not necessarily the football player that they want to be, because some people's expectations of what they want to be, they're not fulfilled, right? I mean, hell, you got a small sample size of guys who are going to play professional, but you can have a successful yeah. college career. You can have a meaningful football experience at your institution, no matter where it is, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, NAIA, it doesn't matter. But getting them to understand how to be a man, to me, is more important because if I can help you become the man you need to be and you are willing to overcome those failures, those setbacks, those shortcomings and work, right, and get in the work, you can become the football player you want to be, but part of that is becoming the man you need to be first, though, because if you're not willing to become the man that you need to be, you're going to fall and fail somewhere on that path of being the football player that you think you want to become. Most definitely. Most definitely. And I appreciate that, AT. One, you just gave a lot of good game. Two, I'm super appreciative of the people that helped you along the way so that you could be this pillar for so many college athletes over these years. The other thing that I heard from this is shout out to the black woman out there that helped you along the way. They played key roles in your parts and, and me, you, and Jonna wouldn't be here without any black woman. The last thing that I'll say is excuses are tools of the incompetent that build monuments of nothing. nothing. If you're a brother you of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, you know the rest. Shout out there to the noobs. Go. There you go. That's it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> uh, so we're going to pivot a little bit, AT. I want you to talk about some of the biggest ways that coaches fail their players. Curious to know a little bit more about that. One of the things that you see nowadays, right, in my experience and probably more so over the past six years or so, is not telling these guys how much work it's going to be. Coaches be kissing ass to kids in high school to get them to come play for them. And I tell parents and young men all the time, I'm not going to kiss your ass. I had a parent recently ask me, hey, with my son, you know, it's a weekend. He can't get somewhere. Are you going to come pick him up? I said, yeah, probably the first time. Probably the first time I'll go get him and take him. He need to go to church and go to the store. Yeah, probably the first time I'll go get him. After that, he's going to have to figure some stuff out. I'm not, I'm not a damn chauffeur, you know. <laughs> But in that same breath, the parent was disappointed because somebody else told her, I'll always be there. I'll always be there to pick him up. I'll pick him up whenever he needs to. Like, I'm not going to sit there and lie to you about that shit. I'm not. That's just it. You know, so I think telling young men and their parents anything to get them to come to you, you're failing them because it's not true. You're not going to do that. Like, they're going to have to figure some stuff out. You're going to have to figure out some stuff. Now, we try to be there to guide them through those situations, right? How a young man call me. This week, I think it was Monday. We're on spring break. So the dorms are pretty empty. And he calls me. And again, I live, you know, 30 minutes from the campus. And he's like, Coach, I locked myself out of my dorm. What, what do I do? I said, where's the RA? You know, the resident advisor. He's like, RA? I said, yeah, the person who's there to watch over y'all asses in the event that this happens. Huh? I said, look, call your roommate. See he's in the vicinity. Then walk your ass down the hallway Go to that door that says resident advisor, knock. If they don't open, guess what? There's a phone number on the door. Call them. 
Five minutes later, he calls me back. Coach, I got it. I'm good. You know, whereas somebody else, but oh, I got to get there. I got to go pick him up. No, I'm going to give you how to solve the problem. So if it happens again, you know how. Because if I'm just going to run over and go pick you up every time something go wrong, how are you ever going to know how to stand on your own twos about it? I think that's one of the things, man, that coaches fail guys with lying to them, not being truthful to them about what, what it's going to be, you know, how hard it's going to be, how tough it's going to be, how hard you're going to have to work, how it's going to be some days that you are going to hate Coach AT. You, there are going to be some days you hate me, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it because we'll get through this fire. We'll get through it. Just know that what we're doing for a reason. And so I, you got to be truthful with people about that. I, I tell that to guys all the time, especially, right, guys geared to come in the freshman year. Man, your first year, you're going to hate me because I'm going to be on your ass about everything. Every little thing you do, I'm going to be on your ass about it. The way you walk, <laughs> the way you tie your shoes, the way your locker is, the way your dorm room is. And you might think it's perfect. Everything's in line. I'm still going to be on your ass about it just because. I got to get yeah. you to understand there's a certain way to do things. On the football field or involving the game, I think we fail guys at times by not giving them enough to be successful or putting them in positions that they are not prepared for and don't have the ability to compete in that segment. Sometimes we do that purposefully, right? To show, hey, look, I knew this was coming. I talked to you about it. You still missed it. Here's why I told you about it. I was feeding you some game on it so you could be ready and be successful in it and you had a shortcoming. Other times it's just saying, oh, hey, did you see the way that he tested? Did you see how many bench press reps he had? Did you see how fast he ran? He should be able to go do it. Well, you didn't give him the intricate details of being able to run outside zone versus an overfront and how he needs to look for the three technique and how the three technique may pop up field. And you got to be ready if the three technique comes up the field to get your foot in the ground and come back underneath him. How to read the man line of scrimmage, understand who's a second level support guy that you have to be prepared to make him miss. We just get out there and say, hey, uh, and you're going to open and you're going to run at this point and then just run. We fail guys, right? We fail guys by not preparing them for those moments, man. And shoot, I'm not – one to say it, I haven't done that, man. Like, John, on my first spring at Cal Poly, I failed, y'all. My first spring, but I, I made it my point to learn every damn thing about that system. Everything I could to be a person that I always had to answer for you guys. But that first spring, I was just like, <laughs> just going, trying to get it, trying to talk my way through it at times, man. And shoot, I wasn't what I needed to be for you guys. I was not what I needed to be for you guys to be successful. And I got no problem saying that now. I look back at it and say, you know what? Never again. I'll never again be in a situation where I don't know what the hell is going on about everything within it. I'm going to find the answers. I'm going to ask the questions. I'm going to push myself to be the best I can so that they can be the best they can. I'm going to give everything to send my dome to my players. <laughs> at the end of the day, I tell this to guys, at the end of the day, when, I, when I'm done, when I hang this thing up, one of my players will come take my job because they've taken all the information out of my head and they gain more and more and they're able to do more with it. I should tell you, I never felt that, never saw that, never heard that. I thought you were an incredible coach and felt like you were everything that we needed as a team, as a unit and more. But again, I, I, I do appreciate that. And I appreciate hearing that because that's powerful, right? To step up and, and admit that and share something like that. My question is, does that happen often? Do coaches admit when they fuck up or when they fail people? 
If so, like, what does that even look like? Have you seen that happen? I've seen more times than not, I've seen head coaches do it. I've seen head coaches say that we didn't put you in a position to be successful. I see that. I think from a positional perspective throughout the years, I think that some position coaches will have a propensity to point a finger as opposed to saying it was them, right? You can say that the young man didn't take the correct steps. Did you rep it enough, right? Did you put them in those positions before they got to that? Or no, you're taking, you're not supposed to take that step. Oh, you got to catch the ball. No shit. They got to catch the ball. They wasn't trying to drop it. But did you give them enough reps on that play? Did you give them enough reps in individual? Did you spend the time with them after the practice? Did you watch enough film with them on it? So from my perspective, again, I'm not I'm not going to generalize the rest of the country or the rest of you know the staff I work with or staffs I have worked with. But I will say just in my perspective and looking at people in general, no, I don't think enough coaches that I know of do that. And I think that when you can openly talk to your players and say, I messed that up. That ain't y'all. I messed that up. You gain their respect if you show that you can bounce back from it. But if you continue to do that, they're going to look at you like, get this dude out of here. We don't know what we're doing. We ain't prepared for anything. I don't care how much they like you. I don't care how much you hoot and holler and all that, man. If they don't feel like you can prepare them for the task at hand and you can admit to when you need to be better for them, I looked at our team this year, the running backs this year, excuse me, after our game, we lost to Washington State. And I told them that I failed them because I didn't pound the table enough for us to do certain things a little more. And I should have been more adamant about it. And we had the ability to do some good stuff that game. And we only scored seven points. It was unacceptable, right? I'm an offensive coach. We can't score a touchdown a quarter, man. We got to re- revisit what we're doing, right? We're supposed to score – once a quarter minimum, right? That's 28 points. Come on. So in the times that you can recognize and identify yourself that you didn't do enough for your, for your group, for your team, you've got to be accountable for it. And if you're unwilling to be accountable for it, you're always going to be a finger pointer about something. You're going to be pointing to somebody, oh man, this rock chip, I got a rock chip in my window, you know, and that damn truck in front of me, why are you driving so close? You know them big ass trucks kick up rocks, move over. You're always gonna point a finger. It's never, it's never you. It's always somebody else, you know. So just in my experience, no, it don't happen enough. You need to be accountable, right? And that's one of the pillars of our program here at Cal's accountability, right? You gotta be accountable. You know, we sit in our Sunday staff meetings and we go through our positional grades and talk about what the players' shortcomings were, but what our shortcomings were as a coach and how we're going to work the next week to not only rectify that. But to get better, what drills we're going to incorporate, what film sessions, whatnot, what walkthroughs, whatever it may be, you sit at the table and you are accountable for it. And when you win, you do the same thing. You do the same thing because it's never perfect. It's always something more you can get better at. So you do the same thing even after win. Win, loss, you get to that table and you talk about how you are going to get your group better, how you can be better for everybody else, how you are personally going to be accountable for those guys. All right. So, AT, I want to do one more question and then we'll hop into the we'll hop into the bonus round. But I have a first on a, on a serious tip. So you touched on, you know, a couple of mistakes 
or, or times you failed as a coach. But of any of those mistakes, what's the one that taught you the most valuable lesson? The mistake that you actually don't regret, you learned the most from it? That's a really tough question because there's been a number of mistakes that have been made. A number. One that I don't regret. Let me see. Golly, I had to think about that one a little deeper, man. That's rough because when you have a mistake that you don't regret, the shit probably worked out for you. You had the wrong personnel on the field or something like that. And then all of a sudden the dude busts for a big run or something like that. And you hear the head coach or the OC or somebody, why the hell is he in the game? <laughs> That's the fucking white reason why he in the game. You know, those mistakes are good, right? Those mistakes are good. Probably a mistake that I have made that I regret is without saying some guys' names, is knowing that a guy was good enough to be there because he was good for the team and it was good for his life, if you will. Mm, yeah. And and not telling him that he was not good enough to play there. But being a part of the team made his life better. It gave him a sense of self-worth, a piece of belonging, but not letting him know flat out, hey, look, we're going to have to find a various role for you within it because you're never going to play here. Like You're, ne you're just never going to play. That was probably a tough one. There's another young man at Cal Poly that I regret not forcing him to hang it up. Not because he didn't have the heart, not because he wasn't good for the room, and not because he didn't have a skill set to play there, but because he kept encountering so many injuries, not concussion, right, but injuries mm -hmm. to other parts of his body that not forcing him to say, no, you don't need to play anymore because by the time you get to having a family, you ain't going to play with your kids the way you want to. But in turn, that young man scored a couple touchdowns in his senior year and the whole team went bananas. He went bananas. <laughs> he was going, he was going, I mean, he was going apeshit on the field, right? And then he got to the sideline, man, and he was crying. And he was just so thankful that he stuck it out. But I still think they probably should have said, hey, man, like, don't play anymore. Like, you've done too much to your body. You've done too much to your body. But I can look back and say it was a mistake that I probably didn't say that strongly and, and firmly enough to him. But the joy that he had from touching that end zone, scoring a touchdown against Idaho State. The other team that he scored against slips my mind, but he scored two touchdowns his senior year. And it meant the world to him. It meant the world to him. And that was it was dope that he had that opportunity. So I can't say that I regret not saying that because mm -hmm. for him, that was what he wanted. He wanted that. He he knew that, yeah, my body's banged up, but he couldn't walk away. He told me that he couldn't walk away. And I was like, eh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to flat out say, look, man, this ain't going to be good for you. And so I'm fired up about that. Man, I'll say his name because I love his brother, man, Ryan Solomon. Solly. Solly scored touchdowns, man. It was huge, man. I mean, it was wonderful for me, for him, for his family. You know, this is prior to his mom passing away. So it was huge to see that, you know. 2020 hindsight, I'll roll with it again for him. If I encountered a situation like that moving forward, I'd probably be more 
adamant about stepping away from the game because of what it's physically going to do to his body later on. Man, this shit is brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, Gladiator score is. for real. Yeah. It is. You know? It is. And I'm very fortunate that I didn't have any significant injuries because it is. It's a, it's a brutal sport. AT, thank you. This is an incredible, incredible conversation. A few triggering moments brought me back to the <laughs> to the film room. <laughs> and you didn't, you didn't tell the, the, the ultimate from the film room. You, you remember when uh, we was up top in the little mailroom slot. We moved up in there, right? And Kelvin and, and John Hall got to scrap in the middle of the meeting. <laughs> they got to tussle in the middle of the meeting. Now, I don't know if y'all want to put this one on. on because no, we gonna put this, we gonna put this on. I forgot about this. They got to scrapping in the middle of the meeting and the room started running. I said, man, close the door. Let's go. Get it then. You know, clear the room. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, he's going to let us go? He let him fire <laughs> We're going to settle it right here. Like, y'all going to be doing all that Jaws, and we're going to get it settled right here, right now. You know? Mind you, John Hall was like 6'1", 240. Kelvin right. was littler than me. He was about 5'6", about a buck 45. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Get rocking. Get yeah, rocking. Fearless. That was, it was the days, man. It was uh, the days. Thank you for that. AT, I want to go into the bonus round. First question. This is actually a serious question. I think usually they're a little bit more lighthearted, but if you can, AT, tell us a, a little bit about the Helmets for Helmets Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, first, appreciate you asking that. Helmets for Helmets is a foundation that my sons actually started. My son, Bryson, who is now 10, has been dealing with epilepsy since Thanksgiving of 2015. Never forget the first time I actually saw a seizure. You know, it was crazy, man. So he's been dealing with seizures for a long time. And, you know, we've been going to hospitals all up and down the West Coast, doing all these different medications, different procedures, intervention things at school, you know, and I mean, I, I can't tell you how many ambulance rides we've had because he can't stop having a seizure. You know, we got to go to the hospital and they got to give him Ativan or something else to slow it down. But with Helmets for Helmets, we received some assistance from a foundation, a charitable foundation there in San Luis Obispo. They heard through another friend, actually, through another former Cal Poly coach that we were having difficulties with our insurance company. So our insurance company deemed that my son needing to wear a helmet for his protection if he fell and had a seizure, it was not life-threatening. It was not a necessity for him to have it, so they weren't going to cover it. And so this other foundation stepped up and purchased a helmet for him. And so when their annual event was coming up, the boys wanted to do something to give back to them. They're like, they helped us. How can we help them? So they said, hey, dad, maybe we can call some people and get them to give us a signed helmet and we can give that to them for their auction. You know, will you call some people? I looked at them and I said, no, you can call people. Here's a phone number. You get on the phone. You tell them what you're trying to do. And so we reached out to a few of my colleagues some family and friends in the profession. My wife's Father reached out. He's a former NFL player, played 16 years in the league. He reached out to some people as well. The boys started doing social media posts about it, what they're trying to do. And that spurned on Helmets for Helmets that 
we were able to go, you know, across the country sharing our story, but also being able to gather memorabilia to auction off these items and take the proceeds from those auctions and buy other kids, specifically epilepsy, but, you know, some others that that deal with other issues, buy them medical equipment, you know, and it started off with doing just helmets and We've kind of grown it a little bit to being able to give assistance with travel or hotels, you know, things that your insurance won't cover, right? The insurance is not paying for you to stay in a hospital in Palo Alto while your son is at the hospital at other base school. So doing things like that as well. So Helmets for Helmets is really near and dear to our hearts. And it, it has become another part of our mission in helping other people. Again, it's taken us across the country to be able to share our story, but really to break the stigma and raise awareness about epilepsy. We all know somebody that has epilepsy. They just don't talk about it. We know somebody that is dealing with seizures. They just don't talk about it because they're afraid to talk. They're afraid to say, oh, this is happening. Right. But then they have one. And you're like, oh, wow. How do we help? What do we do? You know, you see that look on their face. Like, wait, do I get away? Do I put the spoon in their mouth? It's crazy, man. I mean, I just met some people a couple of weeks ago that were here on campus. Their daughter deals with epilepsy and they've dealt with it for, you know, like 10 years. So helmets for helmets. It's the boy's baby. Me and my wife just get a chance to help them and push them the right ways and what they're trying to do with it and, and be able to help other kids and help other parents, get them to talk about the things that are going on in their life. You know, my wife had a conversation with the parent after seeing us on some TV show. I don't remember what, which one it was, but seeing us on a TV show. And so they reached out, the family reached out to my wife and Talked about the sons, you know, her son has epilepsy and whatnot. And it was just a relief for that mother to be able to talk to another mother, you know, because moms, they want to solve stuff, right? They, they want to make sure their baby is okay. Their family was struggling, though, because mom was internalizing everything. She wasn't talking about it. She was just really drawn in and didn't want to move around outside with the kids and, you know, their relationship, you know. There was things with that, but her being able to have open and fluid conversation with somebody that had the same thing going on, it really just changed about the way that they maneuver, the way they operate, and it changed what their family was about. You know, so being able to do that—that's another piece on the on the parent side of Helmets for Helmets—is being able to allow people to speak their truth or, or what is going on within their life and not feel. Like the world is scorning them or looking down on them because it's happening. I mean, it's something that so many people deal with that we just don't know. And to be honest, it's not enough funding. So that'll be part of what we move forward with is trying to push people to get the necessary funding for it, to educate more than just first responders on how to deal with epilepsy. You know, I took CPR classes and some of them have, have been really helpful. Some of them have not dealt with epilepsy and seizures, you know, mm-hmm. so being able to educate people who are actually, in my view, first responders, teachers and administrators at our elementary and middle schools and high schools so that if somebody is having a seizure, they know how to help them. They don't have to wait for the ambulance to get there. They know how to help them right then and there. So that'll be some stuff that we're going to try to get behind with community leaders and 
see if some of these things can be be passed through votes, through bills to educate other frontline workers on how to help kids with epilepsy or cerebral palsy or whatever it is. So the number of people suffer from seizures, not just people with epilepsy. So it's good and it's going well. It's heartwarming, though, to have your kids want to give back. Yeah. You know, you, you feel like you're doing stuff the right yeah. way. Like you feel like, okay, hey, they see us opening up our arms, opening our hearts and trying to give whatever we can. And they wanted to do this. This wasn't, oh, hey, we should do this. This would be cool to do. No, this was this was them wanting to help out somebody else. And it's like, all right, keep going with it. You know, yeah. you, God put it in your heart for a reason. Go with it. Yeah, that's incredibly special. Shout out to Brock. Shout out to Bryson. Shout out to Lennon, too. I can't forget him. And I guess the whole fam. Shout out to Sarah, your wife, your daughters, Akira, Peyton. Shout out to the whole whole Thompson fam. And I, I want to give one more plug to Helmets for Helmets. So, again, check out the website if you have time. It's helmets, the number four, helmets.com. Again, an incredible foundation. Dave? I need to echo everything Jono said. Shout out to you, your family, your family unit for being able to take this situation and help others, right? And really create impact beyond your immediate family. So like huge kudos to y'all. I want to make sure y'all get your flowers. And I think the foundation that you guys started is beautiful. I want you to talk about the 2017 season. So Cal Poly goes one in 10, last in the division. If you could share just a couple of mistakes from going through that season and what you learned, that'd be incredible. Yeah, 2017, man. Sheesh. Worst season of my life, my football career. Never had anything like it. Aimed to never have anything even close to it again. It was rough, man. I mean, started out that season playing a home game against Colgate, and we missed a lot of stuff that we shouldn't have missed. And we were going through playing somewhat close games early on, but coming up short. And we didn't do enough to put other people in because I think we relied too much on certain players that possessed traits to do it and didn't rely enough on the totality of the team to get the wins done, man. And one of the things that I learned from that is I was hot all season, right? It was hot, hot, like pissed off every day, every day, every day, just pissed, right? And like Eric Thomas says, you'd be pissed off for greatness, not pissed off because shit ain't going well, right? I was pissed off because shit wasn't going well. That ain't how you live. You'd be pissed off to be great, pissed off before, right? To work harder, to do more. And one of the takeaways that I got from that 2017 season was that I was not a good enough leader for the team that season. That didn't hit me until probably the last two weeks of the season where a friend of mine, Eric Nicolaisen, a guy who has been instrumental in my life in a number of ways, you know, a friend of mine from high school, still good friends to the day. Man, shoot, he was a big advocate for me getting here to Cal. You know, him and Coach Wilcox actually played college ball together. So, you know, we've had those connections for a long time. So he's been a big advocate for me in my coaching career. But he sent me this audio book. He sent me the audio book by Jocko Wilnick, 
And it goes into leadership failures and leadership triumphs through a military perspective from the U.S. Navy SEALs. But then he also correlates it into leadership failures in business. You know, he's a renowned speaker. He goes throughout the country speaking his truth, speaking to corporations, to teams, whoever. He's got some pretty powerful stuff. And he really honed in on a couple of things for me. And one of them that kind of jumped off was that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. And as he broke that down in the different sects that they were doing within the Navy SEAL training and the missions that they had over in Fallujah and other parts of Iraq, where they had mishaps where they maybe had lost uh, another soldier or they were surprised by their enemies, right, that had set off IEDs or had attacked them or that they fell into a trap or whatnot. It all came back to that team wasn't bad. It was the leadership of it that did not prepare them, that did not see through, that did not put their ego to the side. And I had to take a look at myself and say, at what point did I put my ego to the side and say, I'm going to do everything I can for these guys to be successful versus saying, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And if I were able to, at an earlier time, put my ego to the side, maybe that the team would have had some better outcomes in some of those close games that we lost it, which would have then gave us some confidence gave us some belief that we could win those close games. And then all of a sudden, the games that weren't close games become close games. Those close games become wins. Those games that weren't close become close games that you can have a fighting chance to get the win. So that book, which was now I have the book as well, but that audio book, man, it was powerful. It was, it was a game changer for me, man. That 2017, man, I was, you know, I always used to mess with John O, DeMar, JT, Mark Rogers, Kenny Mitchell, Ryan Solomon, Blake Page, Mike Montero. You know, I used to mess with all those guys, man, and tell them, like, man, I'm getting grades because y'all over here giving me these grades. Y'all stressing my ass out. <laughs> Just go out here and do it. Well, man, that 2017 thing, man, it, 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 straight gray face long, whatnot. Like, it just, I was not having a fun time coaching, but I had to take a step back and look at myself. Our shortcomings as a team, and I told this not only to the, the running backs, but I told this to the team that I won't be that again. I failed you guys by not being a better leader for you. And I had some tough questions within the recruiting cycle that year from parents about that season, you know, and I told them the same thing, that I was not a good enough leader. And that kind of just wraps back around again to some of the core traits that I look for within my room and, and some of the core, the pillars of our program here at Cal is accountability, right? I had to be accountable. I couldn't just, oh, we're not winning because of that. Now we wasn't winning because I wasn't doing enough. I needed to be more for the guys in that team, in that program. I needed to be more. So I didn't, Oh, man, if such and such would have caught this pass in that game and damn, if he'd have made this block. No, man, that was me. I didn't put them in enough position to be successful. I didn't give them enough of me, of what I had and what I knew to put us in position to be successful. That was on me. If you'd asked me that question after the first four games, probably a different conversation. You asked me that heading to the last two games of the season. Nah, that's on me. 
That's on me, the season, the whole season. I'll take that. I'm man enough to admit that I didn't do enough for those guys to give them a chance to be successful, you know. So 2017 Mustangs, I say it again, I need to be a better leader for you guys to be successful. Next bonus question. I'm going to throw it back. So I need you to be honest here. And Eric, I hope you're listening to this. I hope you're listening to this. So we'll hear it here. Coach, who do you think was faster, me or Eric Gardley? Man, E. Guard had wheels, bro. He had wheels. <laughs> hold on, no, hold on, no, hold on, no, hold on. No. I'm, I'm, I'm going to break it up. I'm going to break it up like this. All right. You put a football in your hands. You put a football in Eric Garley's hands, and you leaving him. But you just Ooh. get on that strip and, and get to run, you know, E. Garley going to get you. That boy had gas. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you put you guys on the football field together, it's different. That. You know what I'm saying? It's different. That. You know, you, 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 you had that heat, man. I, I never forget my, my introduction to you was seeing the tape of you with that big running in South Dakota State that you took to the crib. That was whoo, that was some gas, right? That was some gas. So, E. Garley mm. got you. If y'all just went on the track, but you put the ball in your hands, I'm going to give it to you. I'm, I'm okay. going to give, give you flowers on that one. All right, E. Guard, I'll give you that. I guess <laughs> I got to give you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, A.T., so let's act as if – the sport of football doesn't exist anymore, but you still got a coach. What sport are you choosing to coach and why? Track and field. Off the rip, track and field. You got to be a self-starter. You got to be a self-competitor. You got to be able to compete against yourself. You nobody out there. Look, if you are doing pole vault, it don't matter what the person in front of you did. You got to go hit that mark. If you are running the 1500, you are competing against the clock. Forget everybody else. Like, that's the thing right there is like guys who tell me that, oh, yeah, I'm going to go train with the track team, but I'm not going to run in the meets. Why not? You're running against the clock. You ain't running against them. You're running against the clock. Well, I, you know, I just I don't want to hurt myself. You hurt yourself. What? Stop it. Come on. That's a competitor sport right there. Like, you got to have a mindset to run track. And you got to have that mindset to get out there and run and run and run and do it again Facts. and run. So football don't exist. I'm coaching track straight up. No hesitation. <laughs> Boom. I love hoop. I'm getting into baseball because my kids play baseball. I wish I had took up baseball at a younger age so I could give them more. But I'm studying that thing, man. I'm studying it because I'm trying to give my kids everything. I'm, saying, I'm learning about it every day. I'm watching, watching games, watching tape, talking to baseball coaches, talking to baseball agents, talking to people who have played the game. I'm talking to them. I'm learning. Nice. But if I'm going to go do it, oh, I'm going to go coach track. I'm going to yeah. go coach track for real. Nice. Do you want to go to shout outs? All right, coach. This is just for you. Shout out section. Shout out to anyone, anybody, any people, any company, whatever it is. Spotlight's on you. All right. Say less. Well, First, big shout out to my wife, Sarah Thompson. She's my rock. She's my backbone. She holds it down. Big shout out to her. Big shout out to my kids, Tomato, Big Time, Bubba Love, Pie, Leno. Y'all the reason why I do this. Y'all give me inspiration every day. Number love for y'all. You know, big shout out to my family. You know, I mentioned previously my, my mother, my grandmother, now deceased. Big shout out to them for what they've given me in life and raising me to be the man I am today. Big shout out to my sisters as well for dealing with me all these years. Big shout out to best man in my way, my best friend, Greg Lauer. You know what I'm saying? Best friend since high school, living down in Florida. Now, big shout out to you. Like, love, nothing but love for him, man. 
always hold me down. Came to a game every year. So this year, hopefully, he, he going to make that trip to South Bend, be down on the sideline with us getting it in down there. Gave a little bit of flowers already my man, Eric Nicolaisen. Big shout out to Diallo Lewis, my cousin, right? He brought me back home to coach him at Grant High School, got me going there and supported me leaving Grant to go to Boise State to step away from coaching, but just do recruiting. You know, he could have tried to skew me from doing that, but he knew where my passion lied and I was in, in getting back into college. So big shout out to D. Lou, number love for you. Big shout out to my in-laws because they're great people. They show so much love. And I know that they are part of who we are today in just the way that not only that they raised my wife, but their other children and, and their entire family and the love they have for each other, and the, the unconditional love they always show to each other is really beautiful. Getting the family together and even though we don't live in the same place, but getting back together and spending time, it's like we don't miss a beat. So big shout out to Mr. Stan and Miss Lori, number love for y'all and my sisters-in-law too, Mason Riders, you know, Jess, Rach, M, straight riders. Big shout out to the Cal running back family, CJ, Sean, Javid, Justin. You know what I'm saying? Y'all have embraced me, Lad, Daniel Lasco uh, as well. I mean, you guys embraced me and what I'm trying to do here and understand and believe that I have the tools to get the room back the way you guys had it. So big shout out to those guys for not only their sacrifice and their time, here as players, but their unconditional support of me and the way I do things here. Big shout out to the ROB fam, man. Can't leave them out, man. ROB fam started that thing at Cal Poly, man, and it just keeps growing and growing. And I love that you guys gave me the opportunity to be in your lives and open up your hearts and allow me to grow with you guys and grow from you guys, you know, and I can't say enough about that group of guys, some I've already named, and John, James Theory, John Hall, David Moore, Blake Page, Ryan Solomon, Kenny Mitchell, DJ Peluso, Gabe Umo, Cole Stanford, Deontay Williams. I mean, all those guys, man, it's been so many of, of you guys that just gave us opportunity to grow and gave us opportunity to show you who we are, man. And I appreciate you guys for that. And you guys are forever in my heart and forever in my family. And, and I mean that, that we are family. And, you know, when we hit the group text, talk, talk about stuff, whatnot. It's all love, man. And so I'm looking forward to seeing more of what you guys do, man. It makes me so proud to see the way you guys are growing, getting married, killing it in the business sector, having families. It warms my heart. Every time I see something from you guys, man, I mean, some of you guys are fathers now. I mean, wow, I mean, it's wonderful, man. So I appreciate that group right there, man. I mean, they make me who I am. You know, I, I tell people this all the time. You know, they talk about, man, congrats that, you know, you got to got to Cal. I said, no, we got here. All the guys that have played for us, that have been around us, that gave us opportunity to coach, to teach, to lead, to be an inspiration or part of their lives. We all here. We all here standing shoulder to shoulder. Like, I'm not here if I don't have a chance to coach John O'Grayson. I'm not here if I don't have a chance to coach Kenny Mitchell. If I'm not here if I have a chance to coach David Moore, Colt Stanford, Deontay Williams. You know, we're all here together. So this is not me being the best running back coach in the country. This is me 
growing with young men that worked with us to get us to this point. So I'll never forget those relationships, value those relationships. And we all family for real. And that's, we're going to keep building that thing here with the cow running backs as well. You know, it's still ROB. So, and it's still all love. Still all love. Coach, I want to turn it back to you, but I meant what I said at the beginning of this podcast. You taught me to get in football, but you also taught me how to be a young man and operate in this world and communicate and deal with failure, push through perseverance and be just a good teammate, right? And be a good person. And I know every single person that, you know, has been in my shoes, been in my footsteps, they feel the exact same way. So thank you. We all appreciate you. Last shout out is this segment called Scouts Honor. And I got a puppy Rottweiler. I don't know if I can call her puppy anymore. She's almost a year old, but her name is Scout. And so I don't know if you got any shout outs to any furry animals, any pets. Oh, I'm going to give a big shout out to our yellow lab Nola, <laughs> for whatever reason, will not keep her ass in the yard. <laughs> Two times today, she's been running down the street somewhere and we didn't have to get her. So big shout out to Nola getting her workout in. I guess she's trying to get a workout because she went to went to the vet two weeks ago and the vet was like, she got to lose some weight. Now she will be two years in August or September. And they're like, yeah, she got to drop about 40 pounds and she big. I mean, and it's a torso. Like all, all thick. And she's running to, to play fetch and she can't slow down. She has to go past the ball. Slow down and then come back. So big shout out to Nola for getting out the yard to go get that extra workout in. Commitment. <laughs> shout out to Nola. Shout out to Nola with your thick self. And last thing, coaches, I just I want to thank you for having the courage and the humility to come on the show. We are absolutely honored to have you as a guest. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you both. Uh, the honor is all mine. You know, I mean that that you guys uh, again are killing this thing, man killing it. Most mistakes, I mean, you guys are killing it and you guys are killing it in all that you do. And so for you to ask me to be a guest on here, I'm humbled. I appreciate it. And I thank you guys. And I'm looking forward to continuing to follow the podcast and see where you guys take it. And I'm looking forward to when HBO call y'all up and be like, hey, we're going to make this into a TV show. You know what I'm saying? No no disrespect to some of the ones that I see on HBO that started out as radio shows and whatnot, but come on, bro, for real. Let's go. Get y'all in there, man. Get, get, get on some real games, some real talk about life and really make a difference in what's going on. So I'm looking forward to that part. So now I'll really be humble when y'all get on TV. If y'all ask me to come on there, then I'll be like, ooh, let's go. <laughs> coach, we got you. I swear. We got you. Oh, man. Well, thank you, Coach. No, thank you, guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, David, as well, man. Appreciate and, you, oh, too. I forgot, I forgot this, David. Hey, when was the last time your brother been back to Cal? Shit, it's been a minute. Yeah, I man. Hey, it's been some time. Okay, so I got to rewind a little bit back to the shout outs. Shout outs to all Cal football alum and calling out all Cal football alum. Brothers, we need y'all here. Get back to Cal. Y'all got something to give to these brothers that's been here. Y'all been here. They here now. Come back. So we're going to get at your brother. We're going to try to get him back in the building because we pull up brothers around. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Boom. Open invite. Let's go. Open invite. (laughs) Appreciate you. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I appreciate y'all, man. It's been fun. Thank you. 